Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we're going to be discussing one of the great religious literatures of world history, classical Persian Sufi poetry. The pain of separation from your beloved and the joy of reunion. That theme, interpreted spiritually, inspired countless Persian poets over the centuries, including the likes of Rumi, Attar, Jami, Bidel, and many others. Through lyrical love poetry and didactic narrative poetry, these poets gave voice to an esoteric Islam that explored the inner dimensions of the Quran and the spiritual journey of the soul from separation from God to the joys and fulfilment of reunion with our divine creator. Such was the high regard with which Persian poetry was held by many Muslims for the best part of a millennium, that in the words of a famous Persian rhyme, Masnavi Maulavi Ma'navi Hast Quran Darzabani Pahlavi, which is to say, the esoteric verses of Rumi are like the Quran in the Persian language. That phrase isn't to be taken literally, and nobody took it literally at the time. The verses of Rumi aren't a literal translation of the Quran from Arabic into Persian. But the great Masnavi, the great book of rhyming couplets written by Jalaluddin Rumi, in some ways the greatest of the Persian Sufi poets, gave voice to the hidden and inner meanings that Sufi mystics regarded as being the secret or higher message of the Quran. Until the end of the 19th century, Persian poetry was read and recited from the Balkans to Bengal, and it's still kept alive today in Iran and Afghanistan, where Persian is the majority language, as well as in the many translations into English and other European languages that have spread since the poet Goethe made the first translations of Hafiz into German. Over the next 45 minutes or so, we're going to be exploring Persian poetry from its early origins in the 10th and 11th century through to its flourishing in the era of Rumi in the 13th century and Bidel a few hundred years later. We'll be asking how the tradition of Persian Sufi poetry took shape and what are its key themes. We'll be looking at how these poems shape the religious and cultural life in Iran, India and Central Asia the core heartlands of the Persian world. I'll be examining the question of why we should continue to read Persian Sufi poetry today. Guiding us in these explorations is Professor Ahmad Karimi Hakak. Professor Karimi Hakak was Professor of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at the University of Washington for 19 years and was subsequently Professor and Founding Director of the Roshan Center for Persian Studies at the University of Maryland. He's a prize-winning translator of Persian poetry and is the author of around 20 books, including Recasting Persian Poetry, Scenarios of Poetic Modernity in Iran, which was published by One World in 2012. <laughs>
Hello Ahmed, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hi, thank you. Well, today we're going to be discussing the subject of classical Persian Sufi poetry. So this was a, a body, a very rich body of, of poetry in the Persian language that in early modern times and through really many ways to the 20th century was read across a tremendous area of the world, stretching certainly from the Balkans in Southeastern Europe through Iran, Persia, of course, where the language partly originated through Afghanistan, Central Asia, and into India. And yeah. in the 19th century, there were many translations made into European languages that, yeah, that widened this readership even further. But before we do delve into this rich, long history, perhaps I should ask you, first of all, that what do we mean by classical Persian Sufi poetry? You're right, every one of those terms has to be uh, kind of uh, unpacked. Classical in speaking about these Islamic traditions means neither ancient, which usually means pre-Islamic, nor modern, which means 19th century and onwards. So classical, basically, uh, classical Persian literature coincides with medieval literature, maybe medieval and Renaissance literature. Uh, and so it, it has its, a very eventful history. And when it comes to Sufi poetry, Sufism kind of appears uh, by drips and drops into the whole uh, system of Persian poetry by highlighting the relationship between man and God, adding God to the duo of the beloved and the patron. So that when the poet issues an address, it used to be in, in secular times, let's say in the time of Rudeki, which is late 9th century and the first half of the 10th century, uh, what we have is a secular world, and Rudeki enjoys the beauty of, of many things in it, but the world itself, the workings of the world, are not good to him. And so he wanders, birds so beautiful, flowers so gorgeous, why, why, why world are you acting in such a topsy-turvy world, the way? So it's, it's in a way, uh, it's, it's, it's secular, it's courtly, it's upper classes, and it's basically elitist, uh, not heeding the lower classes, if you will. And so uh, into this then come different strands of thought that talk about the afterworld, the afterlife, talk about uh, God and his majesty, talk about man's obligations to God and the duties that he or she may have to the creator. And the Sufi part of it is really, initially at least, a very uh, apt thing, a very social thing, comes out of society. The Sufis, the early Sufis, beginning with Halaj, for example, which is a very famous 9th century, uh, believed that the, uh, the Prophet Muhammad himself was a Sufi. He sat in the mosque and, and mingled with his followers, and they, they conversed, and they, they had discourses, and talked about every, everything. So, and it, there was a simplicity, a piety, that was, that, that, that was very manifest in their poetry.
this later of course by the time the apostate comes around a century or so after the advent of Islam uh, and they try to emulate the Sassanid courts of Iran the, the Sassanid yeah, pre-Islamic court yeah, yeah. pre-Islamic court uh, they go for luxury and this luxurious way of life turns the pietists off and they, they don't they frown on it and so it becomes an alternative to a kind of uh, luxury that may not be seemly within the simplest, simple sophistication of early Islam. I think that's helpful, Ahmad, because it, 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 as you pointed out, the, the, for Sufis, they didn't necessarily see themselves as, as a distinct form of Muslim. The, no. Sufism is often casually defined as Islamic yeah. mysticism. It's, but actually, for as this tradition develops yeah. in the early centuries of Islam, Really, these Sufis saw themselves as as being, in a sense, the true Muslims that followed the exactly. interior, the exactly. esoteric, as well exactly. as the exterior, let's say, the Sharia, exactly. the, the more rule-based forms of Islam. This, and they were developing yeah. in, in Baghdad, right. the Abbasid capital from 750 AD onwards, yeah. the, the second century of Islam, but also, crucially, in, in Persia, these older domains right. of the Sasanid right. Empire, where there'd been this rich courtly tradition of secular poetry that, that you've mentioned and that as uh, the, the, the tradition of, of Islamic Persian poetry develops starts to take on these, yeah. these Sufi themes. Yeah. So perhaps you can tell us how did this tradition of Persian Sufi poetry take shape? How, where and when? Yeah. Well you know you have to think of Khurasan as an alternative to Baghdad. Baghdad of course is the center of the Islamic empire of which Iran is a part. But Khurasan is a very important and rich cultural domain, and which it is not politically independent, but it is. It's. 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 It. It gives rise to the Persian language. And by Khurasan, we mean parts of what are now the far eastern part of Iran, parts exactly. of Afghanistan, and even parts of it, Central Asia. Central Asia, exactly. Central Asia, uh, northern Afghanistan, and eastern Iran. That's part of Khurasan, and it's in that space that the early. Islamic dynasties, let's say the Tahirids and the Safarids and the Samanids and the Ghaznavids come about. And by this time, of course, they have become sophisticated enough to have a court, and usually a rather elaborate court. And so there are these people in the, in the, in the, uh, in the peripheries looking for anyone who can give expression to the ideals of the court. And that's how they flag certain young people who have some poetic talent and they pay for them to go to the capital. And the capitals, of course, themselves move from Sogd of Samarqand to Bukhara to Barq to Marv and eventually to Ghazni. It's in Ghazni where Mahmoud uh, really forms his court uh, and, uh, with, the, with a famous uh, population of 400 poets. I don't know how they may have, they may have run their, those sessions, but definitely the rich poetry of the Ghaznavids, while it's a continuation of the uh, Samanids, at the same time it begins to admit into itself little bits and pieces of Greek thought, of Hellenic thought. And it is, it, it is that space where Plato and Aristotle in the 9th century, of course, they've been translated into Arabic. Al-Kindi has done it in Baghdad. But 
Of course, it turns out that he didn't know. He thought some of the texts that he thought were by Aristotle turned out to have been by Plato and vice versa. And so the two traditions kind of become enter this, this Persian poetry. This is really helpful, isn't it? Because we're actually recognizing that Persian poetry develops in many ways on the, the eastern frontiers and beyond the eastern frontiers of what's now Iran. Exactly. As you've said, the, the, the capital of the Samanid dynasty in Bukhara, what's yeah. now Uzbekistan from 819 right. to 99, and Ghazna, and, uh, the capital of the Ghaznavid dynasty founded in 977. Yeah. These become very cosmopolitan, very intellectually and spiritually, and indeed, uh, places that are rich in, in literary terms as yeah. well, aren't they, as you said, with all of these court poets. And it's by this period as well, the 11th and the 12th century, that Sufi ideas have been expressed already in Arabic prose, beginning yes. in Persian prose. So one has this very complex Sufi metaphysics, this philosophical, theological, metaphysical writing in Arabic that's developed, as, as you've hinted, from Arabic Islamic traditions, but also Greek philosophical traditions into yeah. Arabic. And it's there, in particularly in Hasna, that we have a figure who's sometimes thought of as being, well, certainly one of the earliest, if not the earliest, of the great Sufi poets in Persian, Hakim Sanai, right, right, right. who dies in 1131 or 1144. And he travels to Serax and all of that. And, and he kind of, it seems like he goes back and forth. He imports wonderful notions from what ultimately he may not have known it but was Greek Hellenic thoughts but at the same time he remains very squarely within the Islamic intellectual currents and from that point of view you almost see the two the external and the internal becoming indistinguishable in his work and so he makes a whole he's the first person who turns it into a, something of a system of thought, uh, Sufism into a system of thought, uh, characterized by purity, by piety, by devotion, by all kinds of ascetic life, not, not seeking so much luxury, which other previous poets did, and at the same time, uh, wanting to live in this world, being a part of this world. And the person who after Sanai really um, symbolizes that, embodies that, is Mas'ud Saad Salman, who's from Lahore, the city that's now in Pakistan. So the, this whole area is Khorasan. It's, it's the eastern part of the Iranian part of the Islamic Empire. And from there, of course, it goes all the way to India, and it goes to the west, all the way to Caucasia, and Western Iran, and it becomes an ever-present force. In a way, a, a giving rise to various leanings within itself, so that in the end you even have antinomians. Uh, as Sufis. By which mean people who actually reject the religious law, like reject the Sharia, other, and say, I'm, I'm close enough to God that I don't need to that's follow right. the external forms that's of right. Islam. Not only that, you know, you wear your clothes because you think, you think you're imperfect. If I'm perfect, I don't need to wear clothes. And so it's, there are all these turning ideas on their heads that distinguishes Sufi poetry from regular 
courtly poetry or secular poetry or other poet this worldly what I call this worldly this this is otherworldly but it also has its own issues with jurisprudence of the time so that neither Farabi nor Ghazali nor any of the others the, ju the jurisprudence really feel comfortable with Sufism even to this day there's this tense um, coexistence between Sufis, Sufism, that is mystical Islam, and the regular fiqh-based, that, uh, that, that is jurisprudent-based Islam, based on the, on the Quran and the Sharia. So, so the, two, the two concepts of Sharia and Tariqa face each other in some sort of askance uh, encounter. It's an awkward encounter. Because if you go too much into Sufism, you get to be antinomian and you, you can even deny God, if you, if you will. On the other hand, if you're completely uh, Zahid, then you become a kind of dry, uh, uh, dry as dust, as, as, as Fitzgerald would say, uh, Muslim who's not interested in anything this worldly. Whereas the Prophet Muhammad is supposed to have given these people a religion that engages both worlds both the present and the future this world and the other world and so Sufism always has to maneuver to not to become antinomian and at the same time not to be seen as the same thing as as orthodoxy and there are I think that's very helpful the way you've sketched out these in a sense some of the in inherent tensions as Islamic tradition as it unfolds and develops in these different cultural and intellectual and indeed by by the Middle Ages geographical settings and certainly there had been as you as you hinted in figures like Al-Halaj Al the yeah. the early Sufi martyr who'd been executed yeah. in 922 and in many ways after that period there'd been a whole series of other Sufis who very much tried after that famous execution in in Baghdad to to reconcile the Sufi tradition, the the tariqah as they called yeah. it, as you mentioned, the the narrow path with the law, the Sharia, in a sense the broad path. It's kind of one of its core meanings of the ordinary Muslims, and and in some ways the as, as you mentioned, there's always these kind of tensions, but there's also a synthesis that finds its way into let's say, the most famous classical Sufi poet of all, perhaps, Jalaluddin Rumi, who right, of course, dies in of 1273 after a biography that's taken him from Vakhsh in what's now Tajikistan, right. through Afghanistan, through Iran, and finally dying in Konya in what's now Turkey. So delving into some of the, the key themes of classical Persian poetry, I mean, you mentioned one figure, the 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 antinomian the kalandar the right, person who exactly. gives up all of or the malamatis right. or the malamatis the people who seek seek yeah. blame upon seek themselves blame, to, yeah, to not look like they're they're absolutely. so pious they don't want to look pious because exactly. that would be proud right. as it were which would be right. yeah, exactly <laughs> so perhaps you could tell us more about you know other of the the key themes of, of Persian poetry and perhaps even give us some examples of uh, yeah. particular lines of poetry. So here are a few lines from Sanoi, uh, that's uh, end of 11th, beginning of 12th century. قصه جام جم بسی شنوی و اندران بیشکم بسی شنوی به یقین دان که جام جم دل توست مستقر نشات و غم دل توست گر تمنا کنی جهان دیدن جمله اشیا درو توان دیدن
You will hear many tales about Jamshid's cup, and in each telling something is added or left out. Know this for certain, Jamshid's cup is your heart. The seat of joy or sorrow is your heart. When you desire to view the world, you can see all things inside it. Uh, so this is the first visible and traceable manifestation of an image in Sanai that's interiorized. Jam, which is a real thing in the world, becomes the heart of the uh, RF. Uh, and it's the, the world-revealing cup. World-revealing cup, yes, exactly. You mentioned Rumi, and rightly so, because he is the apex of this line of metaphysical Sufis that runs from Sanai through Attar to him. And he actually says that Attar Ruhbudu Sanai Du Chashmu. So Attar was the soul, and Sanai was the two eyes, and we have come following them. Uh, as such, there's, there's this historical line that stretches from Sanai through Attar to Rumi. And mind you, the story that I think it's just a story, it's a tale, but it's a very telling tale of Rumi's father actually going to Neshabur and, and seeing Attar, and by this time Jalal al-Din, later to be this great Rumi, is a young lad of 11 or 12 years old, and Rumi looks at him and curses his face and says to the father, he says, your son will set the world afire. And we see exactly, or, or at least what we think is that's the that's the really the real true interpretation of his vision of this young boy. And so uh, we have all these tales that may not actually have happened, have been true, but they 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 have a lot. They they are very meaningful and very pregnant with, them, with a lot of meanings. At the same time, the part of Sanai that tackles society, that looks for ideals, that sees in the Hellenic tradition something that makes for a better society, he leaves his inheritance to Nezami, who is out in Ganje in the Caucasus. In what's now Azerbaijan. And uh, what's now Azerbaijan. And of course, you know, Nezami, uh, looks at Ferdowsi and wants to retell the st some of the stories of the Shahnameh in search of justice. So in a way, what connects the Shahnameh to the Panjganj, for example, the kind of, you know, Khamse of Nizami, is the search for justice. What is justice? People begin to sense that the, the followers of Fiqh have failed to bring about justice. We see today too they, they they continue to fail. Only maybe they feel they fail better, in a better way. But it's that failure that pushes the likes of Ferdowsi and now Nezami into just explaining the ideal of the, of the ideals of the world. Alexander looms large, and Anushiravan, of course, the pre-Islamic king who was king when the Prophet Muhammad was born, and so all of these people become paragons of virtue and uh, and examples to follow. So there's a very strong didactic element to Persian Sufi poetry. Of course, not all 
didactic poetry, Sufi poetry, but almost all, all Sufi poetry has lessons to teach us. And in that sense, it's didactic. It adds to our store of knowledge. So much so that Qamus writes his book for his son. And, you know, it's, it's a way of training. It, it becomes a mirror for princes a tradition. But then from Nizami, this goes to Saadi. Again, the social Sufism. Metaphysical Sufism is the line of Sanai, Attar, and Rumi. Social Sufism is Sanai, Nizami, and Saadi. And Saadi and Rumi, of course, are near contemporaries. And then these two begin to converge in the most problematic case of all, and that's Hafiz. By then, of course, the mashayikhs, Sufism has become institutionalized. All these mashayikhs are there. They're very important, and they, in fact, don the garbs of this and that and all kinds of th things and become very important, self-important. But mashayikh, we mean the, sh the great Sufi sheikhs. Sufi sheikhs, sheikhs by, by this exactly. point, by the time of, of Hafez, who you mentioned, exactly. perhaps the most famous of all Persian poets, and right. certainly the most famous of Persian Sufi poets in a way. He dies in 1390 in, in Shiraz, right, in the city exactly. in the, the center of Iran today. And yes, by this period, the Sufis, the Sufi sheikhs are, have tremendous wealth in many ways. They have yeah, tremendous absolutely. monasteries, great absolutely. big shrines, etc. So in a sense, the that early element of, of, of Sufi poetry and Sufi piety generally of rejecting the wealth exactly. of this world in a sense has come full circle when the Sufis are in many ways some of the most prominent, some ways wealthy and certainly of the most, let's say, religiously powerful figures yeah. of their day by, by uh, the time of, of Hafez in the, in the 14th century. The paradox that's Hafez, of course, demands that we pause there and ask this question. Are is anyone who talks about Sufism a Sufi? It may not be. We don't know what Hafiz was. He's, he's very slippery. But he know, we know that he has serious problems with those who don the robes of, 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 uh, of, of prominence and does not like them. So there's this, this pride that takes over these mashayikh, these uh, chief uh, chiefs of, 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 of Sufi orders. And as such, the language of Sufism becomes the language of Persian poetry. So that beginning with Hafiz, not all, not any, anyone who pays homage to Sufism is a Sufi. In fact, Sufism becomes a kind of novice Sufi that keeps being deceived and galled into various funny situations. Rumi has a lot of those. But mysticism becomes something very elevated. It's an experiential height that if you take it, you no longer will say that you are a Sufi. You just become silent. Rumi, Rumi says something, he says, I'm, I speak so much because I want to remain, to remain silent. So the paradoxical, it becomes very paradoxical, which is really the great thing about Persian poetry, and it makes it have an appearance and a depth that to this day engages us, even even moderns, uh, in, a, in a way that no other, 
neither Persian architecture nor 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 music nor anything else engages in that way quite the same way because we see both faces of humanity in it the individual experiential and the social and the metaphysical and the the need to form orders and groups and act uh, in 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 uh, in in coordination with one another and as you hinted there's this actually enormous range of genres within exactly. Persian poetry generally and an eco within Persian Sufi poetry. The figures we've talked about so far, a figure like Sanayi, a didactic poet, mm -hmm. and who, that's to say, a poet with a very much a, a teaching mission that's in right. his Harika al-Haqiqa, his walled garden of truth, a very long and complex poem. Figures like Atar II, who seems to have died in the Mongol yeah. invasions in the 1220s, sometime later, simply writing long, long didactic poems that, in, in his case, explaining the journey of the soul yeah. through the cosmos to its union yeah. with God. And perhaps the most famous metaphor in Persian sea poetry, morgue, the, right. the sea morgue. He encounters right. the great king of the birds, right. who is also the same as the, the sea morgue, the 30 birds that make it that far right. into the, the birds, the souls, into the union with God. But as well as these didactic poems, there are also, as, as you've talked about, um, with with regard to Saadi of Shiraz, these a very strong ethical tradition concerned oh, yes. with justice, and equally service, and you know, uh, he 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 insists. Saadi is very insistent that ibadat be just khidmat nist. To be a good servant of God, you need to serve the people, and if you do not serve the people, you have no right to call yourself anything, not even a Muslim. So, so many people who pretend to be Muslims, in fact, are harming Islam because they are giving a bad example. But the man who sees a dying dog in, in the desert and decides to make a, 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 a bucket out of his own hat and put his, his own uh, waistband around it and get some water from some, some well and, and, and give the, the dog some water, all of a sudden, the, the, the Prophet brought news from way back, way up there, that God forgave all of his sins. So it, it, it's, it's this kind of notion of khidmat, notion of service. We are all there to serve people. He himself, he elevates himself as a, as, as, as a great servant of humanity. And that's where the humanity, the humanitarian strain in Persian poetry, is very very strong that's because intuitively as a human being you have to know how to behave how what behavior is good and what behavior is not to not to be followed as such it becomes a person you, you don't need the fiqh you don't need any of the knowledge you don't even need the quran but you need to just have this sense of being good just good by nature and it's that that becomes your 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 guidepost in life. That's really important, isn't it? Because when one says mystical poetry or Sufi yeah. poetry, perhaps one one thinks of something that's very introspective, concerned with, let's say, soul searching. Exactly. And indeed, that there is 
a genre within Persian Sufi poetry that's like that. And perhaps one might say that's the, the ghazal, which is also yeah. the, the genre of yes. love poetry, but a much more personal side yeah. of poetry. Yeah. But as you've explained very well, so much of the, the larger body and certainly the, the, the longer works of Persian poetry are really concerned with these ethical questions of how to behave in the world yeah. as a Sufi, as a Muslim, and as a good human being, yeah. most importantly of all. You alluded to it, you know, this, the central theme of the quest takes over. The tariqat means there's a pathway and you have to tread it and you have to go as long as you can without even thinking of destination. Every step can be your destination. That's why those birds flying towards Mount Qaf to find the Simur, the god of all birds, those who die have done it. Those who are, are still flying will do it. And as such, there is no such thing as being un, uh, unsuccessful. You, if, if you have done your best, you already are successful. And you already have tread all the past, all the path towards the one and, and, the, and, and only God. So sometimes it comes in the form of a simur, a chief uh, bird that has lived since the time of Solomon and so on and so forth. At other, at other times it becomes uh, a, a well, it becomes something that you, as long as you seek to move on and to become aware of the path that you're treading on, that's, that's an import, the important thing. The, it's that, that experiential nature that separates it from the Sharia, which is all in the book, in the Quran, and the Sharia as interpreted by, by the jurisprudence. So in a way, part of the, the contestation between the jurisprudence, the orthodoxy, and the Sufis is, one says, you have to know your Quran. You have to know your law. The other one says, no, you just have to tread the path. You have to go. You have to be a salik. You have to be a salik and go all the way to the end of this road. A salik, a traveler. Yeah, a traveler, a, a, a wayfarer. And, and until you, 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 you get to be salik and majzub. So you see yourself being sucked into this, this luminous situation. And that then you know you have, you've made it. And this idea of the, the Salik Imajzub, in a sense, one might translate that as the wayfarer who, is, who has gone mad, but in a sense through jasper, through the attraction exactly. to the divinity. Exactly. So by being drawn into the drawn divine into presence or drawn into that Or something of the divine presence. That's right. Which is not one thing. Yeah. It is, it is, it, the whole thing is all-embracing. But as long as you know that you're within the radius of that divinity, you know that you have made it. And so many Sufis, so many Saleks really go all the way and eventually come back without realizing that they have become Majzub and now they're making others Majzub. They're jasping, they're, they're, they're attracting other people. So it becomes a kind of a, a perpetual quest that drives ultimately against against uh, let, let's say, just settling against doing nothing, against going nowhere, against relying on your knowledge, relying on your books and on your laws and all the rest of it, and not making an example of yourself.
And that uh, that idea, or indeed that experience, along the, the path, the Sufi path that you've talked about, of of some Sufis having gone into this close personal mystical experience, let's yeah. say, with God, and and become jazba, become or madrub, become enraptured, but then coming back to society. That, in the language of the Arabic language of the the technical manuals or metaphysical treatises of Sufism, which are written in 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 Baghdad from the, the 9th and 10th century mm. onwards in the early Islamic period, this is this idea of, of fana, to, exactly. to so submit to the will of God that you're lost, you're exterminated, yeah. literally yeah. fana. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, the next stage, the Sufi would say along the path, after this annihilation of the self yeah. within God, is baqa, you're surviving. Yeah. And then you come back to society for that ethical purpose, Amazing. as you said, to Amazing. be leading others. And all of this, of course, then becomes crammed into this 500 ghazals that Hafiz writes and after him no one knows what to do with this tradition. Between Hafiz and Jami that, that century, 14th and 15th centuries, really different things happen. First of all the full force of the Mongol and Timurid conquests begin to show themselves all over the area that's modern Iran and, and, and uh, Central Asia. Uh, in in the end, Iran, after uh, Ru uh, Jami dies in 1492, and 10, 11 years later, nine years later, uh, the, the Safavid dynasty, from the 16th century to the 18th century, tried to make Iran a monolithic Shia uh, country, and they, they execute and kill, actually, uh, anyone who, who refuses to... Uh, to 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 damn the the Rashidun, the 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 caliphs, the well-guided caliphs, and as such, Iran becomes a little uh, island of something. All of this force, all of this idea of quest, all of this Sufism moves then into India. And India, of course, uh, at that time is anything that's to the south of Iran, and it's a place of several religions, many, many multiple religions, and that's where uh, the 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 uh, Gurkhanis, the the Mughals of India, uh, gain power, and that's where we meet someone like Akbar, who really wants to bring the Hindu and the Muslim and everyone together in as one. He stops at this generic thing of ibadat, and and makes that ibadat khane, which is uh, ibadat simply worship. Yeah, just just worshiping, just worshiping God, Wor worshiping a God that even as you're worshiping, you know it's one and the same in your religion. You know the rest is just the tradition, the inherit the inherited uh, customs that you have. You know the person next to you is different, but you know you you. Uh, you you don't think you don't think that difference is important. You know that as long as you take aim at that one God, you you are all doing the same thing. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating thing. The the three empires of the Ottomans in Turkey in in Turkey and, and Eastern Europe, uh, the Safavids in Iran and Central Asia, and the uh, the the Mughals in India in India, all of these 
really become a places for different uh, manifestations of Sufism, of Sufi uh, concepts, of Sufi ideas. And spreading these ideas, the, the most important vehicle throughout this entire region from the Ottoman Balkans all the way down to south, the southern Indian provinces of the Mughals, is this Persian poetry that isn't the first language of people. It's in a sense the, the, the Latin perhaps right. of, uh, of uh, the, the, the Islamic world, a, yeah. a, a language yeah. of, of rich poetry but also religious and mystical inspiration that, as you've hinted, in India in particular, becomes very helpful, has a very important social as well as a spiritual function in, the, in these multi-religious environments, whether in India or indeed places like Central Asia where there, are, there is a, a very old Jewish community as well as, of course, many, many Muslims. In India, of course, if you, if you think of uh, Amir Khosrow, uh, who dies in 1325, and then all the way to Bidil in the 17th century, 14th to 17th centuries, you have its own, its own uh, Sanayi to Rumi lie. There is the same un unfolding of more and more sophisticated, more and more sophisticated expressions of Sufism. And this Sufism then embraces all the other religions of, 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 of the country. Even Sikhism becomes one with, with Hinduism and Jainism and all and, and, and Islam. So India becomes a, an even larger uh, arena for the growth of Sufism. Uh, and and it, it goes all the way from, uh, from uh, as I say, Amir Khosrow to Bidil to then by the time we get, we get to Ghalib, the nationalism begins to creep in. And Persian, of course, England is in, is in India. Uh, uh, gradually, Persian loses its strength in India. Uh, and all the way, all the way, even, even early 20th century, Gandhi saw a place for Persian in India. But of course, his vision didn't come. He, in his experiments with the truth, he says, I think I think we can still teach Persian, uh, this the heritage of this language, and it means Sufism by and large, Sufi poetry, but of course that doesn't happen. Then the separation happens, and India and Pakistan become two different countries. And Iqbal is the last, uh, on the one hand pre-modern, on the other, early modern poet who writes both in Urdu and Persian, and Persian retreats then, as you will show in, in, in the book that you have edited, The Persian World, World, uh, into its own initial uh, space of Iran, uh, Afghanistan, and Central Asia. It's still an international language, but the heritage of the past in it is extremely strong, and that's what makes it perhaps more difficult in Iran than in a place like India to become modern all the way, which is why we see the results even at the end of the 20th century there's a, re a religious revolution and, and, and it's 40 years later we don't know whether this revolution will ever become a state or not or, or would like to remain a revolution so there, there, it's all in a way has to do with Sufism which again has ultimately to do with the human quest to find one's own God Ahmad Karimi Hakak, thank you for speaking to us in Akbar's chamber thank you Nile.
Da 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 da